One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be finding out about another step forward in the world of quantum computing, and learning about labour division in ant colonies. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show this week, reporter Adam Levy has been getting entangled in the story of a computer running a rather unusual simulation. Picture a computer. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you are probably thinking of your laptop, or maybe even your smartphone if you're being smart about it. There's a good chance you weren't thinking of a quantum computer. These hulking, supercooled machines can take up the best part of a room, but still aren't capable of doing anything that a regular computer can't. Even so, there's something fundamental about quantum computers that could one day give them an advantage. A bit, which is the kind of fundamental building block of any computer program, is a binary digit, which is just a zero or a one. This is computer scientist Andrew King, but the building blocks of quantum computers aren't bits. Instead, quantum computers use qubits. Qubits can be composed of the spin of an electron or a current in a superconducting loop. But whatever is used to make a qubit, the crucial thing is how they behave. A qubit is a. A zero or a one, or both at the same time, the probabilities of of zero and one occurring kind of interact in ways that are not possible in classical computing. And this otherwise impossible interaction between qubits means quantum computers can perform otherwise impossible computations. At least that's the theory. Here's Davide Venturelli, also a computer scientist. Well, we cannot uh, certainly claim, at least to my knowledge, that something that has not been done with a classical computer has been done with a quantum computer yet. Now, spoiler alert: we're not bringing you news of this so-called quantum supremacy, a quantum computer performing a task no regular computer can handle. But a paper out this week does offer an important step. You see, one of the reasons that quantum computers are yet to achieve quantum supremacy and leapfrog classical computers is that they are just really hard to build. 
Most quantum computers only have a few handfuls of qubits, not enough to handle tasks that your laptop can't. But one company, D-Wave, has built a machine with some 2,000 qubits. In my opinion, D-Wave really schooled the world that if you are really determined to create a quantum computer, to build a quantum computer, you can. What they did is to create a processor that exploits some effects of quantum mechanics, not all of the effects and all of the power we would want, but uh, let's say a minimum viable quantum computer. But then the challenge will be to be able to create algorithms and procedures and the computational methods that can work with the constraints of this architecture. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. So these D-Wave machines may have more qubits than other quantum computers, but they're also trickier to work with. Andrew, who we heard from earlier, works at D-Wave. He set out to simulate something that quantum computers should naturally have an advantage at. So back in the early 80s, Richard Feynman proposed the idea of uh, a quantum simulator where you would want to study a quantum system. And even though you know the equations that describe this system, they're very difficult to solve. But if you can somehow program another quantum system to simulate the quantum system that you're interested in, then you can get a big advantage over the... uh, over the classical simulation that you would have to do. In other words, because a quantum computer is already, well, quantum, it can simulate certain quantum systems more naturally than a normal computer. What we're trying to investigate with this experiment is the onset of a what's called a topological phase transition. So it's essentially a very exotic phase of matter in a, a magnetic lattice. And so physicists have studied this system before, and we wanted to see if we could uh, make our computer uh, instantiate the system. To do this, the team had to set up the computer so that it would simulate the system correctly. But they also had to find a way to read out the answer. And this isn't a trivial task like reading something off your laptop screen. The team have to peer what the delicate qubits are doing in the middle of the process. It's, it's all really difficult because the system is extremely sensitive. And so balancing it was a big challenge. It, you can imagine kind of trying to present somebody uh, a marble on a, on a plate. And uh, it's really difficult to do unless you have the plate balanced very well. But Andrew was able to balance the plate. The D-Wave computer was able to simulate the topological phase transition in a material, getting the same results as a classical computer. Of course, the fact the team could simulate this problem using a classical computer at all indicates this is not an example of quantum supremacy. But while we might not be at a computing sea change just yet, Andrew says the quantum computer simulation did still outperform its classical counterpart. Yeah, the results were were very good. Our results indicated that we are much, much faster, so at least thousands of times faster. Uh, The ultimate hope is that we can study materials uh, efficiently without making them in a lab. With this work, a practical use for quantum computers might be that much closer. These machines, which have been worked on for decades, may finally be moving from theoretical playthings to actual useful research tools, simulating materials and processes that would be impossible to study on conventional hardware. For Davide, who didn't work on this study, 
this is a big deal. I think the paper by Andrew King and collaborator is a very, very, very interesting development because the level of analysis is unprecedented. And I think that uh, it will pave the way towards uh, more experiments to be able to represent physical models which are highly non-trivial. But pushing the envelope is only part of the motivation for Andrew. And he looks forward to more and more clever computations with these quantum machines. I have to admit that uh, half the pleasure of it is, is just working on a really cool problem and having things work out the way that you want them to. Um, but it's, I, I think that um, we're kind of at a turning point with quantum computing. Um, the uh, competitive playing field is, is getting a lot more crowded. And I think we're going to show some really interesting results and other people will show some really interesting results in the next few years. That was Andrew King, who's based at D-Wave Systems in Burnaby, Canada. You also heard from Davide Venturelli, who's at the University Space Research Association, USRA, in Washington, D.C. Davide was keen to point out that USRA offer free use of their D-Wave machine through a peer-reviewed proposal. Coming up later in the show, we'll be hearing about a big anthropology story, an ancient human relative that was half Neanderthal, half Denisovan. That's coming up in the news chat. Before then, though, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. A group of school students in Italy have identified an unusual astronomical X-ray flare that's left researchers stumped. The students were analysing archived data from the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton satellite as part of a school project. They identified a short-lived burst of intense X-ray radiation coming from the Galactic Globular Cluster, NGC 6540. The flare, which lasted only five minutes, was both too brief and too dim to have come from any known source. Researchers who investigated the students' finding are trying to figure out exactly where the X-ray burst originated and think there may be similar events to be found in the satellite's data archive. Read more from those bright sparks over at Astronomy and Astrophysics. A tiny parasitic wasp may have had supersized effects by helping to stabilise global food markets. In 2008, Thailand's production of cassava, a tuberous plant used to make starch, fell sharply after an infestation of mealybug pests damaged crops. This drop in production caused global prices of cassava starch to rise considerably. To combat the infestation, the Thai government released a wasp that selectively targets mealybugs. Researchers showed that once this pinhead-sized parasitic wasp had been introduced, cassava yields increased and global prices fell. While unable to show a direct link between the wasp and the price of cassava starch, the team say that their work sheds new light on the role that biological pest controls can play in global finance. Feast on that research over at Environmental Research Letters. Now, enough of all this science chat. Let's have some small talk. Um, Ben, what have you been up to recently? Oh, well, well, thanks for asking. I mean, I've still been enjoying the hot weather, you know, out in the garden and all the rest of it, just watching the bees fly around like I talked about last week. Ah, bees. So you social. I am indeed. No, you, you EU social. Yes, I am very sociable with people from the European Union. The bees, Ben. I'm talking about the bees. Well, I'm not friends with any bees, Germany. What I'm trying to get at is that bees are eusocial insects. 
they've evolved to live in a complex colony. In particular, a colony where tasks have been divided among specialised castes. Even the reproduction is divided up. In the case of ants, a queen does all the heavy reproductive lifting and produces sterile workers who do things like forage and tend to larvae. All the individuals play a small but specific part in the workings of the whole colony, a bit like cells in an organism. They're sophisticated societies, but this sophistication can't have just started, it has to have developed. And just how that could have happened has been interesting Daniel Cronauer from the Rockefeller University in New York. To understand how some of these traits may have come about, he's been studying an unusual species of ant. Noah Baker gave him a call to find out more. Here's Daniel. So the, the question is always, why do you become eusocial, right? Like, what are the, initially, what are the driving benefits before you have strict reproductive division of labor, right? Because, of course, you don't go from a solitary insect to something that's highly eusocial, like a honeybee. It's a, it's a gradual process, right? And so there have to be, um, there have to be certain fitness benefits uh, for these individuals to come together in these groups. And uh, that was kind of the big question in, 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 in the current study, like what are kind of from an ecological perspective, what might the fitness benefits uh, be that accrue to individuals that join these kind of groups? In this study, you've worked with a particular species of ant. Tell me about these ants, because these aren't, you know, what people might imagine of an ant colony. Yeah, so the species that, that we studied, uh, the clonal raider ant, it's a pretty unusual species for a social insect in that the colonies don't have queens. Um, they only have workers, but all the workers can reproduce, and they do that clonally. They reproduce asexually, and so they basically clone themselves. So it's quite unusual, but um, it's a very nice model system to uh, to look at these kind of questions. Like, for example, in this study, what happens as a function of just increasing group size? So you have this incredible system, this sort of colony of clones. Tell me, what is it that you did with your clones in this study? Yeah, so we're basically trying to monitor behavioral dynamics as we increase group size, and we're also trying to monitor um, the effects of fitness of increasing group size. And, and just how big are the fitness benefits that you've been seeing? You know, how, how much of a benefit does a larger group bring? I would say very dramatic fitness benefits. So if we look at the smallest group sizes, so these are group sizes where you actually have only one ant, um, these are basically not viable. Like in most cases, they just die. Versus if you have the largest group sizes in our colonies, uh, in, in our study, so group sizes with about uh, 16 ants, they kind of double the group size in every colony cycle. So basically once a month or so, you have a doubling in group size. Um, so those are, those are dramatic fitness uh, differences. And it wasn't just an increase in fitness that you saw either. There were behavioural changes as well. The ants started to share out the jobs, as it were. It turns out that even if you uh, work with extremely similar individuals, again, everybody's matched for genotype, they're all genetically identical. As you increase group size, you, you see very stable division of labour emerge. So certain individuals very consistently spend more time inside the nest where they uh, nurse the larvae and, and so on, and others spent much more time outside of the nest where they explore the arena and forage and so on. You did some modelling as well to find out exactly how this might work. What What is it that you think is going on here? Even if you have individuals that are extremely similar, you probably still have uh, slight differences in what we think of as behavioural response thresholds. For example, imagine you share an apartment with a roommate and then there's dirty dishes that are piling up next to the sink and one of you has a lower response threshold to the dirty dishes, so that person will get annoyed earlier and will start to do the dishes, start to clean the dishes. 
And so the stack of dishes gets lower, and so it will never reach the response threshold of the individual or of the of your roommate with the with the high response threshold. And so immediately you get this division of labor just because there's like slight a slight asymmetry in the in the response thresholds between the two individuals that are sharing the apartment. In ant terms, what are the kinds of tasks that could be analogous to washing the dishes? What is what are the ants' version of that? So there's a lot of different tasks in an ant colony that have to be performed. But just to give you one example, um, the ants have to take care of the larvae inside the colony. And you could think about it this way, that the larvae need attention, they need to be fed, and they signal that they are hungry to the adults. And they do this uh, probably via some sort of pheromone, some sort of chemical um, that the ants, that the adult ants can perceive, and then they respond to the larvae, for example, by going out and foraging. All the ants in the colony get exposed to uh, this larval pheromone in the same way. Um, but then some ants have a higher threshold to respond to this pheromone, and other ants have a lower threshold. And so the ones that have a lower threshold, those are the ones that will go out and forge and try to bring back food. And this division of labor is what we'd call an emergent property. So it's not centrally controlled or planned. It's actually just something that emerges out of a simple set of rules. So things like difference of tolerance to pheromone cues, for example, in these ants. Now, that's all very clever. But in your study, you found out that it's not actually the key to the success of these ants. And actually, that's more linked simply just to the size of the colony. I think one of the messages of the paper is that you actually can have increases in, in very striking increases in fitness um, just as a matter of increasing group size, even without emergent division of labor. The division of labor seems to be kind of a little bit of an add-on. So you can get very strong increases in fitness just as a function of increasing group size, even if there were no um, uh, kind of behavioral specialization between the individuals. And then if on top of that you build uh, behavioral specialization between individuals, you can, you can increase fitness even more, right? It augments the, this increase in fitness. That was Daniel Cronauer speaking with Noah Baker. You can read Daniel's study over at nature.com forward slash nature. Well, finally this week, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Nisha Gaind, one of the editors here at Nature. Thanks for joining us, Nisha. Thanks, Ben. OK, then, Nisha, for our first story today, then we've got something that, uh, well, has caused a bit of a stir. Yep, this is a really exciting story, Ben, and it's caused a lot of chatter in our newsroom. And one of our reporters has called it the human evolution find of a decade. Well, I mean, don't keep us in suspense, Nisha. What has been found? So for the first time, using genetic analysis, scientists have found a fragment of a bone that seems to belong to a person who was half Neanderthal and half Denisovan. And those are two extinct human groups. Oh my goodness, this is the first time that this has happened. This is the first time. It's the first time that they have found a first generation person of mixed ancestry. And that's absolutely extraordinary. Well, Nisha, as I understand it, this is just another step in this story. Yeah, so this story goes back a couple of years. Uh, The work was led by researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And back in 2016, they had this bone fragment and they had already done some radiocarbon dating on it. And they found that it belonged to a hominin who lived more than 50,000 years ago. And their analysis then of the specimen's mitochondrial DNA showed that it was mitochondrial DNA from a Neanderthal. So mitochondrial DNA then is inherited from your mother. So I guess this showed then that this ancient hominin's mum was a Neanderthal. Um, But Nisha, I guess the researchers have taken this a bit further. Exactly. So at that time, they knew only half the picture. and They didn't know the identity of the father of the person to whom this bone fragment belonged. 
And that's what they've done now. And that's where the bombshell has dropped. So in the latest study, they have been able to sequence its whole genome and they have compared it to the DNA of three other hominins. And that is to a Neanderthal, to a Denisovan and to a modern day person from Africa. And what have they found? So they found that around 40% of the DNA fragments from the specimen matched Neanderthal DNA and another 40% matched the Denisovan. And they also sequenced the sex chromosomes and they determined that the fragment came from a female and that the thickness of the bone suggested she was about 13 years old. And the researchers have now nicknamed her Denny. Right, so equal amounts of DNA from each parent. Um, But Nisha, what are other researchers saying about this work then? Researchers are really, really excited. Kelly Harris, who's a population geneticist at the University of Washington, uh, says that these results convincingly demonstrate that the specimen is indeed a first-generation hybrid. And others agree. They say this is a really clear-cut case and this is headed straight for the textbooks. So we've come quite a long way then since uh, since that first paper in 2016, but it seems like there are probably still some questions that need to be answered. Absolutely. In this case, it raises questions around how Neanderthals and Denisovans interacted. For example, did they mate frequently? And if they did mate frequently, why did they remain as genetically distinct populations for several hundred thousand years? And there are questions about geography as well, as I understand it. Um, Denny, as we're calling her, is thought to be about 90,000 years old now. But where she was found in this uh, in this cave in Russia seems super important as well. So there are questions about how often Neanderthals and Denisovans actually overlapped because their encounters might have been quite rare, researchers suggest. Um, but Neanderthals might have travelled from Western Europe where they were thought to live to Siberia, where Denisovans were thought to live or vice versa. And on the basis of the variation in this specimen's genome, the team deduced that Denny's Neanderthal mother was more closely related to a Neanderthal specimen that was found thousands of kilometres away in Croatia than to another that was found less than a metre away in the same cave in Russia. Well, let's move on then to our second story, and it couldn't be more different, to be honest with you. Last week on the show, Adam was speaking about you know using satellites to to measure kind of differences in in temperature in the oceans, and uh, and measuring these things with satellites is super important. But there is maybe one hole that researchers are trying to fill. Um, Nisha, what's that? So that's measurements of wind, which is one of the biggest gaps in the global Earth observing system. But I know we can measure wind, you know, pretty accurately here on Earth. So why do we need this new system? Uh, Wind measurements that are made at the moment are very regional, very patchy, and they're made by individual sources like weather balloons and aeroplane flights. Now they're going to use a satellite that will take a much broader view and will measure winds around the globe using a laser system from space. Space lasers, now you are talking. But Nisha, I mean, how does this new system help measure the wind? So this mission is called AOLIS. It's been in development at the European Space Agency for about 20 years. So meteorologists are really excited for this mission to finally be lifting off. And it's going to use an ultraviolet laser, which will be shot into the Earth's atmosphere. And the photons in this laser are going to bounce off air molecules, and some of them will reflect back to the craft, which... From these molecules' movement, it will be able to discern parameters like wind speed, wind direction and wind altitude. And that's a lot more information than researchers have ever had about wind at a global level. So a lot of data then, Nisha, but what will this allow people to do? 
So this is going to give much more detailed information on wind forecasts, especially in the tropics where many measurements aren't taken at the moment and by a few percent in Earth's mid and high latitudes. Now that might not sound like a lot, but if we improve forecasts by even 2%, the value for society is many billions of dollars. Now that value comes from people being better able to forecast and better able to prepare for things like storms. Well, that sounds, you know, very positive, but what limitations might this system have? So even though this satellite is going to hugely improve uh, wind forecasts, there are some things that it's not going to be able to help with. Um, and that's because Aeolus's laser can't see through thick clouds. So it won't be able to penetrate storm systems like cyclones. But it will be able to track other phenomena such as dust blowing off the Sahara, which has been an increasing problem in recent years, as well as plumes of pollutants spreading into different altitudes. Um, And researchers are excited. They think it's going to bring other interesting discoveries. Right. Well, if they're excited, then when can they expect some uh, some results? So we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, the 21st of August, and we think that it's going to launch in the next day or two. And if all goes well, mission controllers are going to switch on that space laser by September. And that means that initial data will start coming in at the end of January next year. And that means that the information can start being inserted into national weather systems by next April. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, Nisha, as always. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about the latest science news, don't forget to head over to nature.com news. Well, that's it for this week. But before we go, I just wanted to tell you about a new film we've just published on a mini magnetic swarm that you can make move through a maze. Marvellous. You can mosey on over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for that. And listeners, keep an eye out for Backchat, which you'll find wherever you get your pods very soon. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.